Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Ian Barr has come up to read our scripture today. And while he's coming up, if you want to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 21. It's 1 John chapter 4. Our scripture reading today is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 to 21. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Good morning. It's great to be together. I heard it's a beautiful day out there. It was still a little chilly when I got here, which felt even earlier than normal. (laughs) I miss that hour this time of year. Um, as we're, uh, yeah, we're going to be in that passage. Thank you so much for reading for us, Ian. Uh, we will be in that first John. We're going to finish chapter four this morning. If you're visiting with us today, we are studying through first John. So that's why we're in this passage. And this is the next passage. Um, as you are uh, turning there or settling in, I wanted to let you know, you will, uh, I wanted to ask you to basically watch for an email from the church office this week. Um, many of you know we're working as a church with a group called Brown Development Group, and they are helping us think through some mission vision things. Um, before we start looking at um, renovations or updates to our facility, you got to need, you got to know with clarity what you want to do with your facility. So we actually are are uh, working with this group, Brown Development. And we've told you this uh, back uh, beginning of the year. Uh, part of our analysis process with them is to administer a, a survey to the entire congregation. It's called the Voice of the Congregation Survey. And the more people who participate in that, the better. Um, and it's a way for you to give us feedback. We have a small team that's kind of doing some, some analysis in, in a small group setting. Um, but uh, we really would value your input. So we actually have an all-church email that will go out at the beginning of the week. And I haven't written it yet, but when I, you know, so, so I can't promise exactly when, but it'll go out. And um, there's a survey link in there. Just click on that, please. And it shouldn't take you too long. It's like 30 questions, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes maybe. Uh, and uh, that'll go out. We'll also have it available next Sunday. We'll have it available on paper. If you're like, ah, I'm sick of that internet stuff. If you want to do it on paper, that'd be just fine. We'll have paper copies of it next, next Sunday, and then the link will be in the bulletin. If you are not on our all-church email list, you'd be able to just type the link in. So we're going to get you that information, but just wanted you to know, so it's, I'm not spamming you. Uh, you are, uh, we, it is from your church, and we would appreciate it if you'd fill it out. So wanted to say that. Uh, let's pray before we get into uh, before you get into the passages. But the passage, 
Father, so much. We are so grateful to you for, for bringing us here today. Uh, we thank you for the, the lovely weather outside and uh, just the symbol that is to us of your benevolence to us, uh, your love for us, your goodness toward us. Uh, thank you for my brothers and sisters and that uh, we are just excited to, to learn from you, Lord. Uh, and uh, thank you that your Holy Spirit abides in all of us. And we would invite you now to be our teacher in this text specifically. Uh, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. That's our prayer this morning. And we offer it in the great and awesome name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen. Well, I'm not sure how long they've been doing it, but for the last few years anyway, the Bible app, the Bible app, a lot of you use the Bible app, the Bible app has been uh, announcing an, an interesting piece of information uh, at the end of the year. And what they've been announcing, and they've kind of, you know, it's kind of become like a newsworthy sort of a thing. What they've been announcing is the most popular verse from that year on their app. And I don't know if you know this, but that Bible app actually gets used by like millions and millions of people around the world. And uh, it's like one of the top rated apps, I guess, as far as that kind of thing goes. And so if you were to know the most popular verse on the Bible app in a given year, that's going to tell you something about that year. It's going to tell you what people are do going through what they're feeling and how they're feeling about that year in particular. Uh, and that's why I thought it was interesting when I, I saw what the most popular verse was in 2020. So you think back to 2020, uh, the most popular verse on the Bible app in 2020 was Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10. More people read that verse, highlighted that verse, made beautiful little pictures and shared them on the internet and that, so all that sort of thing. More people did that with that verse than any other. If you don't remember what that one says, Isaiah 41.10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do not fear, for I am with you. God says. That was the most popular verse in 2020. And if you think back to what we went through in that year, you can see why. Right? I mean, even, even if the only thing people dealt with was COVID, that would have been plenty. But then there was all the other stuff that went on in, in 2020. And so it makes sense. No wonder people were, were dealing with anxiety, dealing with fear. And thankfully, they knew where to turn. Millions and millions of people were turning to the Bible, to God's Word for, for help with their anxiety, with their fear. And that's actually what we're going to do this morning, because this next passage, the, the verses Ian read for us before, 1 first, uh, first John chapter 4, verses 15 through 21, they do the same thing. This passage helps us with our fear. It helps us with our anxiety. It helps us with our fear. Uh, last Sunday, we were uh, in verses 7 through 14. So that's where we, last week was 7 through 14. And as your Bible probably doesn't even have a paragraph break here at 15. You might even wonder why I'm starting at 15. But if I had my own translation of the Bible, I'd start a new paragraph at verse 15. Uh, but, but it's true. A lot of most translations don't even bother to, to have a paragraph break there. So the two passages are obviously connected. They're obviously related to each other. And what we did last week was we, we really built around verse 8. And verse 8 says, God is love. And so we, we talked about what that means. What it mean. We talked a lot about how God loves us. God loves us. And we also talked, because John does, about how uh, w the impact of that on how we treat each other. And so it's, it's, one, it's, it's, it's true that God loves us, but it, the scripture doesn't stop there. Uh, we then are to love one another because God loves us. So God loves us, and we therefore are to love one another. That's really what we talked about last week. 
Here's what John does in verse 15. In, in verse 15, he takes this discussion about God's love and he brings it back to the doctrine of Jesus. And I've told you a few times that this is one of the three major themes, three or four major themes that trace through this whole book. Uh, it's very important to John in this letter that we have the right thinking, that we be thinking correctly about who Jesus is. The, our doctrine of Christ is an important issue, an important uh, theme in this letter. And so in verse 15, he, he, click, he links God's love back to Jesus. And so he says in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And so in this discussion about love, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he, that person, abides in God. And that word confess, it's an important word. It means to, to acknowledge or, or to, to profess as true, to profess something is true. So when he says confess in this context, he's not talking about confessing sin, which is how we often think about it. He, he, he's talking about professing that something is true. And, and in verse 15, the true thing is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God, or Jesus is God, which is really what that means. And at this point, I've, I've said a few times as we've gone along that John's writing style is different from, say, Paul. Not bad. I don't ever want you to think I'm saying bad things about John's writing. But John's writing does tend to kind of zig and zag and come back to things he's said he before and to, to, to link threads across verses. And so when you read verse 15, why don't you write verse 2 next to it if you're a write-my-Bible kind of person? Because uh, verse 2 goes with verse 15. Because what verse 2 does in, in this chapter, chapter 4, what verse 2 does and what verse 15 do is together they give us our basic, I'll, I'll use the word, our basic Christology, our basic doctrine of Jesus. This is the part that apparently some of these false teachers were messing up in different ways. This is the part that John is writing this letter to make sure that the church that's remained, because remember there's some kind of a split over doctrine, the church that has remained, he wants them to know they need to, this is what it is, what they need to believe about Jesus. They need to believe, uh, verse 2, that he's fully man. Jesus Christ is, is come in the flesh, it says back in chapter 4, verse 2, but he's also fully God. Jesus is the Son of God, verse 15. He uses the same word in both cases, confess. We need to confess that he's come in the flesh, that he's a human being like us, but we need to confess that he is fully God. He's not like us in that sense. We're not God. We're just human beings. And the way he presents all of this is, is just so we're clear, it's essential, right? We're not talking stuff on the third or fourth layer here. You know, sometimes there's doctrines that aren't that important and, or they're important, but we can work together with them and not have problems. But this is core doctrine. That he wants us to see that, who Jesus is. In fact, the way he states it in verse 15, really what he's saying is that Christians are Christians because we believe this. If we don't believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, then we're, we're not actually believers, right? Or at least we, have, we need to get our doctrine shored up because we're not believing what Christians believe. And so Christians are Christians because they believe Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, all of that's foundation for what he really wants to talk, well, he wants to talk about that, but what he wants to say now about, how, about God's love, right? So verse 15 is kind of this, this linchpin, and now everything else is going to build around it. Because when we believe that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, God does something. He moves in. He, he abides in us, John says. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. The Holy Spirit takes up residence. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Actually, I think it might have just been last week. The, the Holy Spirit takes up residence 
He comes to dwell within every person who puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ. And so God abides in us, and we abide in him. That's verse 15. In the rest of our passage, so the rest of what we're going to look at this morning, John's going to develop that, and he's going to develop it specifically in the context of what it means for, for love, for this love that he talked about in the, the first part of the, of the chapter. And what it means for us is that when we abide in him, we are blessed with his love. We experience those who abide in God's presence, who stay, who remain. Remember, that's what that word means. We're going to set up camp. Uh, actually, it's, it's, it's related to the word for when the Israelites camped with God and he camped with them. Those who abide in God's presence experience the blessings of God's love. And so in this passage, there are three. And so I, want to, you know, I wanted to do verse 15 as, as this foundational verse, but really what I want to use the rest of our time to do is to look at verses 16 through 21. And I want to show you three blessings, three blessings of God's love that John shows us here. All three of them have to do with abiding in God's presence. We abide in his presence, and, and therefore we experience these different blessings that we're going to talk about here. And the other thing I want to, I want to say about these three is that they are all connected in some way or another to fear. In fact, he's going to talk about fear in this passage, which is why, why I went in that direction and thought about that Isaiah 41 passage. Uh, it's the same thing as that, you know, that Isaiah 41 may be more inspiring, you know, put it on a, on a banner or something, but he's talking about the same stuff here. God's love for us helps us with our anxiety. It helps us with our fear. And there are actually three specific fears we'll talk about as we go along. So let's get into it. You'll see best what I mean as we do it. So blessing number one, the first blessing that we see in this passage, <clears throat> I want to call it the certainty of God's love. The blessing of the certainty of God's love. When we abide in God's presence, when we believe that Jesus is, is the Son of God and that he's come in the flesh, we enter, we believe in him by faith, uh, we experience the blessing of the certainty of God's love. And this one is going to help us with, with a very deep-seated human fear. Right? A deep-seated human fear. It's the fear of abandonment. The, the certainty of God's love is the solution. It's the remedy to our fear of, of being alone in the universe. Right? It's kind of a, you know, to use a very fancy word, it's, it's a very metaphysical fear we're talking about here. You know, philosophers and scientists will wax all, all poetic about how we're alone in the universe. And, you know, it's a big, dark universe, and we're all by ourselves. Uh, and, and that's really gloomy. No wonder everybody's so gloomy. Uh, John would beg to differ. We are not alone. We are not abandoned. Uh, God is with us. Look at verse 16, because verse 16 is the one where we see this first, uh, this first blessing of God's love. So verse 16 says, so, so verse 15, he makes this statement, whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And, there's, and then there's a conclusion drawn from it. So uh, we have come to know and to believe the love. See how he connects abiding in God's presence to love. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love. Now he goes back to this abiding idea. So now we're not just abiding in presence anymore. Now we're abiding in love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So there's something that happens, John says. There's something that happens when we abide in God's presence when we uh, put our faith in Jesus and then we begin to pursue after him and, 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 uh, and pray and read the scriptures and all these things that, that we talk about with that, when we abide in God's presence, he says we come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 
And, and both of these are, are words where we experience something. To know something is to know it personally in the scriptures. And so we're knowing it and we're, we're believing it. it it's, it's entering into our souls. It's something we believe in. Our faith is there. It's, a, it's related to the word faith. Uh, we trust in it. And what we know and what we trust in is, is God's love, God's love for us. And the really interesting thing to me in this verse as I was studying it is the way Paul, or excuse me, John, uh, structures his language because he uses a particular verb tense and the way he, he repeats the two ideas and puts them in, in parallel with each other is, that, is, is what he does is he stresses the continuity of God's love, of our knowledge of his love and, and his, our experience of it. And so it's an ongoing, continuous thing. So it's not, so what you're, it's not that... Our, our knowledge of God's love and, and God's love for us more particularly, it, it's not that God's love for us kind of, it's, it's there sometimes and sometimes it's not. Right? Or, or you know, it's here for you know, this week and that week and, and I'm doing really well and then I have a bad week and, and it's not there. And then it comes back again, oh, but then I have a bad day and it's not. No, he, he uses, a, he, the way he, he expresses this, this is the ongoing state of affairs. Well, no matter how you and I feel about it, this is true. Uh, we know and we believe his love for us. I thought of this term, you see this sometimes in, in news stories and so on, the term settled science. You ever see that term? They'll, they'll talk about settled science, and sometimes it's a little controversial because people have different opinions about what counts as settled science. Uh, but but I, I looked it up. It's actually it's a useful term. Uh, settled science is, is something, let me, let me define this correctly. Uh, it's something that scientists assume is true. It's so agreed upon that they simply assume it's true when they do their experiments, form their hypotheses, and so on. A good example would be gravity, right? When a physicist does a, an experiment of some kind, uh, you know, she doesn't have to go back and reestablish if gravity still works, right? She just assumes gravity still works, the principle and all the rest of that stuff. Gravity would be, would be an example maybe of, of settled science. Well, the way John phrases this to us here, he's telling us this is settled love. We have come to know and still know, and we have come to believe and still believe his, his love for us. And so assume it is true. Just like a scientist assumes gravity, you and I as followers of Jesus should assume God's love. Don't uh, doubt it. We've come to know and believe it. And then he, he um, underlines this a little more in the second half of the verse. He says, God is love. And he actually he goes back to verse 8. He already said this in, in the passage we looked at last week. It's so essential to the argument he's making. He says it again. Uh, God is love. This, this love that we've come to know and to believe. Uh, and, and, and notice, this is, it's important. It's not that God has love. It's not that God feels love. Right? That could, you know, theoretically anyway, if, if it's merely something he feels, well, maybe that feeling could go away. No, but it's not something he feels. It's, it's his very character. It's inherent to his very nature. Not God, it's not that God has love. It's that God is love, John says. And so again, there's this certainty to it in the way he describes it to us. And so that's a blessing. That's blessing number one. Uh, we live, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've done what John describes in his inimitable way, if, he, if you've come to believe and to confess that Jesus is God come in the flesh and that he is the Son of God, that he is God, if you believe that, then uh, you get to live with the certainty of God's, God's love for you. Now, I said a minute ago that this helps with, uh, I called it the fear of abandonment, right? The fear of abandonment. Let me, let me show you what I mean a little bit. Let me, let me hi highlight two ways that this works. The first is that this reminds us that God is indeed personally present with us. 
He is personally present with us and for our good. I suppose theoretically he might be with us, but, but kind of, you know, glowering over our shoulders. Uh, but no, what, what verse 16 tells us is that God is present with us in person for our good. And so Jesus is the remedy for our loneliness. Do you ever feel lonely? You know, we, we hear so much in that, you know, people are, are to varying degrees dealing with loneliness and isolation and the pandemic has only made it worse. Uh, Jesus is, is the remedy for our loneliness. He's the solution uh, to our abandonment for all those who've been abandoned by somebody. Uh, he's our help for times of trouble. He's our fortress uh, when we are feeling hopeless. All of this, even in our darkest, that, that's where this comes to bear, even in our darkest, loneliest, saddest, most depressed moments. Our creator is with us, and he loves us. He's with us, and he loves us. That's why a verse like Isaiah 41.10 is so powerful. It's powerful because it's true. Right? When, when God says, fear not, for, for I am with you, we know that he means it. Right? This is what the, the New Testament establishes for us. It's not a tease. He's not faking us out. He means it. He means it when he says that he will be with us in every situation. So there's that promise of, of, of the certainty of his love is that promise of his personal benevolent presence. The other way this helps us, and, and not everybody deals with this, but many do. Uh, the other way this helps us is with um, spiritual performance anxiety. Spiritual performance anxiety. And, and like I say, not everybody deals with this, but I know so, some of us do. Here, and here's what I mean by that. Many people think, many believers think that God withdraws from them until and unless they perform a certain way. And so we end up saying, you know, I need to do blank. I need to do blank so that God will love me. I need to quit smoking. Then God will love me. Or I need to overcome sexual temptation. I need to defeat lust once and for all. I can't keep coming back like this. Or, or I need to read the Bible every single day. Then God will be pleased. Right now, he just kind of coldly puts up with me. But if I can get this thing knocked out, then God will really love me. Then God will be pleased with me. Listen, you should quit smoking. It's not good for you. And you should stop letting lust control you. And you should read your Bible every day. I'm a big fan of doing that. But God will be no more pleased. This is what we have to hear. God will be no more pleased with you when you do that thing than he already is because of your faith in Jesus Christ. He will be no more pleased. He's fully pleased already because you believe in Jesus. If you believe in, in Jesus, you abide in the certainty of God's love. And there's no condition on that. There's no condition on, on the certainty of his love for you. So that's blessing number one. When we abide in God's presence, we experience the blessing of the certainty of God's love. <clears throat> Here's another one John wants to talk about. Blessing number two. Blessing number two is the security of God's love. When we abide in God's presence, we experience the security of the love of God for us. And this one helps with a fear. It's another fear, and maybe you've thought about it lately, maybe you haven't, but it's a, it's a, uh, a big picture universal fear. And the, the fear I'm talking about here is the fear of judgment. The fear of judgment. The, the, the security of God's love is God's solution to the fear of judgment. See, I'm convinced I'm convinced, and I know, I'm convinced, uh, that deep in the human soul, we know we are accountable. Human beings know we will be judged. Uh, that's why, I don't know how much comparative religion you've ever done. Uh, I've done a little bit. It's why the world's religions focus on appeasing the gods. 
All the different ones, in some way or another, they all focus on, on, on making the angry God less angry, right? I mean, you go back to pagan days, you know, the gods are angry at us, so we need to find some way to appease them. We'll sacrifice some fruits or an animal or a baby or a virgin or whoever it is. We've got to do something to make the gods less angry at us. And why do human beings do that? Why is it this universal thing humans, humans do? Well, we do it because we, I think we know deep down, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that we will be judged. We will be judged. God's love is a solution to that. Because that's a very anxious way to live. That's a very fearful, anxious way to live. And I think a lot of this, you know, why, are, why so much kind of angst do people live with? There's lots of reasons, but I think this is a really deep one right here. And God's love is the solution to it. God's love is the only one that's going to fix that fear of judgment. This is the one John talks about in verses 17 and 18. So look at those two verses, please. Uh, he says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what's he saying? He's saying when we abide in God's love, uh, which is the reference back to, to what he was just talking about in verse 16, by this, it's abiding in God's love. When we abide in God's love, he says God's love is, is perfected. And remember, we've talked about this word a few times now. The word means to be completed or fulfilled. And, and so it's not dependent on you or me. It's, it's all dependent on him and what he's done. And so his love is, is completed. It's fulfilled in us. And so w w in what sense has God's love been completed in you and me? It's in the sense that everything's been done that needs to be done. And John talks about it in, in this letter. He actually talked about it back in verse 10, uh, most immediately. In this is love... Here's where God's love's completed for you and me. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And how did he do it? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice. We looked at that verse last week. And so uh, his love for us, where do we see the fulfillment, the, the, the best picture? Remember, that word perfected or complete means the best picture. Where do we see the fullness, the, uh, the, the height of God's love for us? We see it in the cross when his, he sent his son and his son willingly came to take care of our sins. Because God did that, John says, look, look where he connects it. Because God did that, you and I have confidence on the day of judgment. He says that specifically. So in verse 18, don't separate verse 18 from verse 17. Uh, we don't have to be afraid, verse 18. Instead, we're confident, verse 17. Why? The cross. We're confident because of the cross. The cross is the reason for our confidence Jesus went to the cross for us. God demonstrated his love through his sacrifice. And so now we have confidence. If you think about it, we shouldn't. We shouldn't be confident. And again, I'll go back to where I started there with the beginning of this point. We ought to be terrified. We ought to be terrified of the judgment of God. You know, the scriptures say it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, of a wrathful God. We ought to be terrified. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for everything done in the body, whether good or evil. Every human being will. And so confidence in front of the judgment is not a, a, a birthright, not an original birthright, right? It's not something we should have access to. By all rights, fallen human beings should be afraid when we think about Judgment Day, because God will judge us. It uh, reminds me of this uh, news story I saw a few years ago. Uh, it was about, uh, about 10 years ago. In, two, in 2011, uh, a man in New York, actually close to where I grew up, Schenectady, New York, 
uh, was uh, on trial for murder. And this man had, had, was on trial for murder. He was ultimately, he pled guilty to it. Uh, so he had done it, and, and he was on trial for, for murder. A few weeks before the trial, he got a, an official-looking letter in the mail. I guess he was out on bail. He got this piece of mail, and he opened it up. It was a jury summons. It was a jury, jury duty summons to his own trial. Did you not? And, and he, he looked at this. He's like, well, that's, that, this can't be right. And you know what he did with it? He ignored it. Now, you're not supposed to ignore a jury summons, right? And, and I don't know what the law is here in Iowa, but in New York, the law is that if somebody ignores the summons, if they, they don't fill out the questionnaire, you know how there's like a questionnaire, you got to go online now. I don't know how it was then, but uh, he just ignored it, just didn't do the online questionnaire. So in New York, that throws you into the pool automatically. So when his day for trial came, somebody handed the judge a list of all the potential jurors, and the defendant's name was on the list. His name was on the list. The judge was a smart, smart guy. He figured it out pretty quick and, and disqualified him. But there was one funny moment, and it's a murder trial. There's not a lot that's funny. But, um, but there was this funny moment where it kind of, in the exchange between the judge and the lawyer and the defendant, um, the defendant volunteered to serve, right? He's like, I, I will... I will certainly serve in the jury if you let me, Your Honor, and, and I promise to be fair. I promise to judge myself impartially. It doesn't work, though, right? If only it worked that way, but it doesn't. We don't get to judge ourselves, not in a human system and certainly not in the divine one. Scriptures are very clear. Only God judges. Only God can judge us. And the Scriptures' accounting of, of us is that we are guilty. Right? Every human being is guilty before God. You, you, I've got a bunch of verses from Romans here. You don't need me to read them, though, do you? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we, we are guilty. And so we ought to be afraid. And yet we're not, John says. He said, I've got to tell you, I need to go back to the bad news so we can appreciate the good news. We're, we should be afraid of God's judgment, but we're not, he says. We're not in verses 17 and 18. And again, the reason we're not afraid, it's, it's not because of something inherent to ourselves. It's what Jesus has done for us. The reason is the cross. We, we, uh, I, I like what he says in verse 18, and it's connected. He says, fear has to do with punishment. Why does he say that? He says it because we should be punished for our sin, but we're not going to be punished for our sin. Why? Because Jesus was punished for our sin. And so now we're not afraid. He's already done that for us, and so we are confident. And, and you know, John even tells us how confident you know, if we're sitting here going, what does that look like? What would it look like to be confident? What would it look like today to be confident? John tells us, because he wants us to know it's for Judgment Day, but it's not only for Judgment Day, it's for today, too. Uh, he says, here's how confident you'll be. You'll be as confident as Jesus was, right? We'll, verse 17, as he is, so also are we in this world. And I will tell you, that little phrase is a little tricky. You'll find a couple of different interpretive um, suggestions here, but the best one I saw here is that what John is saying is that Jesus had no fear of judgment, right? He's talking about fear of judgment, as, as he is. When Jesus walked this earth, it never once occurred to him, unlike all the rest of us, it never once occurred to him that God was going to judge him, because he never sinned, right? And so Jesus is the only human being to ever walk the, the face of this earth with a completely clear conscience. He was the only one. And, and, and John says, right, so he went about his days completely free. No fear of judgment on the part of Jesus Christ. And then look what John does there in that verse. He says, that's how it is for us. As, as he is, so also are we. 
in this world. It's not just Judgment Day, although that's certainly awesome, but it's, it's right now too. And so, yeah, the devil loves to accuse us. He loves to trot out that stuff that we did before, days ago, years ago, decades ago. He loves to trot that out. Sometimes we even accuse ourselves. I remember we talked about that a few weeks ago in an earlier passage. But as far as God's concerned, we are free. We are free from the fear of judgment. We are as free as Jesus himself was when he walked this earth. I like how Max Lucado put it. One more uh, bit here on this point. Uh, This comes from a book Max wrote called Come Thirsty, and he addressed this verse. Uh, He said... uh, his words are better than mine. He said, God views Christians the way he views Christ, sinless and perfect. Hence, Christians can view judgment the way Christ does, with confidence and hope. You need never fear God's judgment, not today and not on judgment day. Jesus is the light of God's glory. Jesus, in the light of God's glory, is speaking on your behalf, and when he does, the door of heaven opens, unquote. And so that's the second blessing. That's blessing number two. God uh, gives to those who abide in his presence uh, freedom from the fear of judgment. We are secure in God's love. The third blessing, blessing number three, is the standard, uh, the standard of God's love. And here's the fear this one helps with. So this one, uh, I hope I can get this out right. It's clear in my head. I hope I had enough time to get it clear for, clear for your sake. Uh, So there's a standard, and John's going to tell us very bluntly what the standard is in verses 19, 20, and 21. But this standard isn't meant to be a burden, it's meant to be a blessing in that it's going to set us free from a fear. And the fear is the fear of of falling short. Right? We're going to fall, you know, our fear is that we fall short of the standard and we're somehow disqualified, but that's not the point of the standard. I don't think it's the point of the standard. See, here's, so, so the fear here that we're going we're gonna to wrestle with is the fear of falling short of, of Christ. And, and Christians deal with this one. Uh, many Christians question their faith. Sometimes they'll even question their salvation because they fall short. But the standard God sets for in this, us in this passage is, I believe it's actually meant to be an assurance. Because if we accept his standard, no matter how imperfectly we accept it, we're, gonna, we're, we're imperfect, but our acceptance of the standard is evidence of the genuineness of our faith. Uh, let me show you. Let me, let me try to show you what I mean. So verses 19 through 21, we'll take them in succession. Uh, verse 19 is a nice short verse, nice short one. Uh, it simply says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. He's repeating, I don't think it's verbatim, but he's repeating the same idea from verse 10. And actually, I just read it a minute ago. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice. So verse 10, verse 19, they're both saying the same thing. Didn't start with us. <laughs> this wasn't our idea. It started with him. That, you know, and again, God is love. What did the God who is love do? God loved first. 19, God loved first. And so that's how we now can love. He, he makes that connection. We love... Because he first loved us. So it's very, you know, we don't love because we're so loving. I kind of, you know, I got a little vulnerable last week and I told you I'm not a very loving person. I was like, ooh, that was a bad thing probably for a pastor to tell his church. But it's true, I'm really not. I mean, I, 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 you know, by his grace, I'm growing in that. But if you left me to my own devices, you would not think me a very loving person. And that's, that's scriptural, actually, because that's not how we love. We don't love out of the resources of our own love. We love because he loved us, he says. Uh, and, and you'll notice John does something here. He doesn't specify who he's talking about. He simply says, we love. 
We love who, John? Don't you want to ask that question? Who do we love? Who, we, who are you talking about? Who do we love? Uh, it could be we love God, or it could be we, he, we love each other, and he's talked about both quite a bit in this book, which leads me to believe he means both. That's why he doesn't specify. So when he says we love, he means uh, we love God because God first loved us, and we love each other because God first loved us. I think that's his point there. Any kind of love we're able to do, uh, we do because he first loved us. And his point, what's the point? The point is that it's his love that is the standard. So when we're talking about now, we're not, you know, we're not talking, you know, there's these different words for love. We're not talking, you know, eros love, you know, the romantic love. We're not talking phileo, friendship love. We're talking this God love, God's kind of love, this transcendent love that we're to to live out in the church and in our, our various relationships. What is that love like? John says it, it goes first. God showed us. We love, we love because God first loved us. What does God love do? God, God love goes first. God showed us that his love goes first. It didn't start with us, it started with him. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. When God tells us to love one another, and uh, what are we up to, number 10 now? Is this the 10th time in the letter, 11th, that we've been told to love one another? When God tells us to love one another, he's telling us something very specific. He's telling us to embrace a a love, a way of living that goes first, that that puts other people first, that puts other people ahead of ourselves. That would be the biblical teaching, the biblical picture of, of love. True biblical love puts other people's needs ahead of our own needs. And not in an unhealthy, dysfunctional way. That's not what, you know, we're not talking about being a a doormat or, you know, kind of, you know, sometimes dysfunction. Yes, all of that is true, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this God-honoring, Christ-imitating way of living. That's what John is going to call love in this letter. God-honoring, Christ-imitating way of living that puts other people first, because that's what he did for us. That's verse 19. Verse 20. So where does verse 20 fit in this? Verse 20 functions as a test. I think that's what verse 20 is. Verse 20 lets you and me diagnose how we're doing with verse 19. Verse 20 is how we test to see if we're, how, how we're doing with verse 19. So verse, verse uh, 19 says we love. Verse 20 says if anyone says I love, in this case God, I love God, and then hates his brother, bah, failed the test. He's a liar. He's a liar, uh, John says. If anyone says, I love God, but then is incapable of, 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 of loving the people in, in his or her life, that person doesn't pass the test. It's a little bit like, uh, um, well, here's what it's a little bit like. Uh, once in a while at home, I will find a battery. Actually, it happens at the church sometimes too, but you find a battery more at home. You, know, you find a battery, a little double A battery floating around. It's you know, under the couch cushions. Does that happen to anybody else? Uh, under the couch cushions, it's on the floor. Happened more when we had kids at home, but it still happens sometimes. Just a week or two ago, I found a battery on the floor. I'm like, how did that get there? So you pick it up. What do you, what do, you do with it? Is it good? Is it dead? Did somebody mean to throw it in the garbage and they missed? Uh, is it a brand new battery? The cat stole it out of the, the battery drawer and they've been knocking it around the house. What, is it good or bad? Who knows? So how do you test the battery? Well, you could put it in a clock or something, see if it works, or a remote control. But there's actually a better way to test the battery. It's to put it in a battery tester. Right? And if the light lights up green, oh, that battery's good. Right? Batteries are expensive, so you want to save it. Um, but if the light's red, it's a bad battery, and, and you get rid of it. Uh, that, I think, is, a, is a, what's going on here with this. Right? Verse 20 is like that battery tester. It, it shows us whether we're loving or not. Because 
what's the point? The point is that just saying I love God doesn't mean anything. Anybody can do that. It's just words, right? It's just words. Anybody can say, I love God. I mean, there, I just did it. I love God. I love, I mean, anybody can say words. The test, John says, is what we do with it. The test is how we treat people, right? If I'm saying I love God, but then I mean, and I'm spiteful, and I'm grouchy all the time, or I'm greedy, and I'm unloving to the people in my life, then the little light on my tester isn't going green. It's just red. And I can say, I can look like a nice new battery, but, but if the light is red, the battery's dead. Right? If the people in my life are not seeing the evidence of my love, John uses, again, this stark phrase he's been using earlier in the letter, I'm a liar. I'm a liar, he says. And then he makes this connection, which is very convicting. You know, he says, if I can't even love the people I can see, right? here they are, right here in my presence, if I can't even love the people I can see, how in the world am I going to love uh, a God whom I can't see? And so verse 20 is a test. How am I doing with the standard? Right? That's, that's how that verse works. And then what verse 21 does, and I'm, I'm going to apply all this in a moment, what verse 21 does is it pulls it all together. He says, oh, by the way, this isn't a suggestion, it's a command. Right? You see where he says that? This is the commandment that we have from him. So we're not just talking best principles here, we're talking commands. This is the commandment we have, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And remember how he's using this word brother. Whoever loves God must also love his brother and his wife and her husband and the children and their parents and that annoying coworker who eats his lunch at his desk and it smells really bad and, and that guy at church who brags all the time and won't stop talking about his, his boat or whatever it is. Love them all. Love the whole lot of them. When it comes to how God wants us to treat those people, the standard, John tells us, is nothing less than God's love for us. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, that makes sense, right? We've, we've got all that in our head, and it, it makes a lot of sense with what we've studied in this letter. The standard of God's love is God wants us to love one another. That's all over the place. But how does that help? How does the standard, uh, how does this standard, the standard of God's love, help us overcome the fear of falling short? It almost seems like it would do the opposite, wouldn't it? Not if we understand it correctly. Because I think the answer to that is that when we embrace God's standard, it, this biblical principle, when we embrace God's standard, that leads to peace. Right? When we do it God's way, that's what strips away the fear and the anxiety. We have peace. We're free from anxiety We're, when we live the way God wants us to live. And so the standard's not a burden. The standard is a blessing. Let me try to illustrate this. Uh, imagine you're driving. Right? So my attempt to explain how a, a standard is a blessing rather than a burden. So imagine you're driving on the interstate. You're, you're taking, you've got to drive several hundred miles. Maybe you're going on vacation. You, you've got a long way to go. And so you're out on the interstate. There is a standard for how we're supposed to drive on the interstate. It's called a speed limit. And here in Iowa, it's 70, right? I think it gets higher when you go west. But, but here in Iowa, it's 70. That's the standard. That's what it looks like to do it correctly. And that standard is a blessing. Right? Not, sometimes people don't feel like it is when you're, you're in a hurry, but it is a blessing. And, and here's how I, I think it's a blessing. As you're driving, and, and real, I'm not just talking kind of big picture policy stuff. It saves gas and it you know, prevents, you know, lowers accidents. Yeah, all that too. But, he, but experientially, embracing the standard experientially is a blessing. Here's how. As you're driving down the interstate... Sooner or later, you're going to see something. You always see it if you drive long enough. You'll see a patrol car seated, in the, seated parked in the, in the median. 
And you never see it like way out there. You see it right here, right? As you're kind of going by it, right? And so you see that patrol car. It's an officer, law, officer of the law. He's doing his job. He's, that's the duty he has today. And so, and what's he looking for? He's looking for people who are violating the standard, right? That, that's his job that day. When you, you drive by that patrol car, what's the first thing you do? You check the speedometer. <laughs> you might slow down. You might tap the brakes, although you kind of learn, oh, I don't want, that's like admitting guilt if I tap the brakes. So, <laughs> so, so I, I don't know. I think a lot of us, the first thing we'll do is we'll check the speedometer. Where, where am I? How am I doing on the standard? If you look down and you're going 90, how do you feel? Fear? Fear? <laughs> Anxiety? Maybe a little guilt? Oh, what did I do? <sighs> Right? If you look down, you're, you're, if you're violating the standards, you feel bad. And you look up in the mirror, is he coming? Oh, here he comes. And you, there's nothing you can say. You, you're, you're wrong. You're, you, you blew it. You, you disobeyed the standard, and now it's going to cost you a little bit. It's going to cost a few hundred dollars. However, same scenario, however, if you look down at the speedometer and you're going 71, what do you feel? <sighs> nice big sigh of relief. It's all good. Right? There's no fear, there's, there's no guilt, there's no anxiety about that at all. Why? Because you'd embraced the standard. You were, you were following the standard, and so you know you're okay. I think that's how it works here, uh, no, when, when, with the standard of God's love. If we embrace the standard, right? so if you're someone who wrestles with that fear, and, and again, it's come up, even in this study, people have, have reached out to me about it. If you're someone who has in the past and still comes back, or sometimes you maybe even now, you're like, oh, this book is setting such a high standard, this letter is setting, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm saved. You know, I, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I, I believe that he died for my sin. I believe these things, but I, I fall short of the standard. Embracing the standard is, is the part that he's hammering home for us here. And I really think that's one of the Bible's answers. If, if we accept and embrace God's standard, that shows that we belong to him. And again, you're not going to pull it off perfectly. That's why there's all that stuff. That's, it's why the first chapter and a half focused in on the solution to our sin, especially that, that last part of chapter one, the first part of chapter two. He needs us to know that we're not talking about perfectionism here. You and I are called to be holy, but we're going to fall short of holy, which is why we have an advocate with the Father, uh, the propitiation for our sins, chapter 2, verse 2, right? All of that. So, so we're not going to do it perfectly. I said this a few weeks ago. If, if you could love other people perfectly, we wouldn't need God. We'd have you, right? If any of us could do that, God is the only one who's perfect in this scenario. But if we look at God's standard, which, you know, again, 19 through 21 make the standard very, very clear. They put other people first, love one another with the love that God has shown to us. If we look at that standard and, and we embrace that, that shows we're his. Now, if you, you hear those verses or you read those verses and you say, that's, that's nonsense, love is for suckers. If that's your response, then okay, you have a problem. All right, that, that's, that's problematic. But if you see these verses, if you read these verses and you think, oh yeah, that's what I want. Right? That's what I want. Verses, verse 19, verse 20, that's what I want. I, I want. I want to be that kind of person, the person who loves people. I don't want somebody, I don't want to fail that test. I want to be someone who loves people. 
That's the kind of church I want to go to. That's what we're aiming for in our Bible study. That's the kind of family we want. That's the kind of marriage we want. That's, that's how I want to be known for how I treat people at work and, and in the community. I want God's love to shine through me. Yes, that's what I want. If, if that's your response, that's, that's, you're right on. That's good because that's what God wants. If that's what you want, that's good because that's what God wants. That's the standard. And, and our embrace of his standard is evidence that we belong to the one who set the standard. Right? We belong to the one who set the standard. We belong to Jesus. And so it shows us how God wants us to live, but it also shows us that we, that we belong to him. And that's a blessing. I want to close with prayer, and uh, that's not unusual. We usually close with prayer, but um, I, I actually want to ask you to think about something before I pray. We'll kind of pray together a little more than we usually do. And, and what I want to ask, ask you to pray with, pray, think about, is just go back to where we started, which is this idea of fear, the fear and, and anxiety. You know, Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, God says, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Can I just ask you, where do you need to hear that today? Where did you need those words? There's probably one or two people in here. You heard me open with Isaiah 41. You didn't hear anything else, and that's okay because you just needed that part today. Where do you need that? And it might be one of the three big things we talked about, fear of abandonment, fear of judgment, fear of falling short of, of, of God's standard. Maybe it's one of those, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's just something personal, something you're going through, a health thing, a family thing, uh, something going on at school maybe or work. Or maybe it's something in the wide, wide world. You know, we opened our prayer, our service this morning with, uh, I loved how you put it, Larry. <laughs> There's hard things going on in the world, right? Russia and Ukraine, and that's uh, not even the only one. There's so many things going on in the world. So, so I'm going to stop talking and just give you a minute to think, and then I'll pray. Um, what, what's, how would you fill in the blank? Just there in private, and then we'll, we'll pray together. What's something you're afraid of that you need to bring to the Lord? Got something? Maybe a couple somethings. Let's pray. Let's bring them to the Lord. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the assurance and the comfort that come to us from abiding in your presence. I'm convinced you mean to bless us and not burden us with this passage. And we thank you for that. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for your promise to never leave us, for the certainty of your, your love for us and your presence with us. Thank you that we have a clear conscience, God, before you now and before you on judgment day, not because of ourselves, but because of our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for the joy of receiving your love and of sharing it and showing it to one another. We lift up these things that we're afraid of, Lord. We pray you would help us. Help us to not be afraid. Help us to remember that you are with us in these things. And maybe it's, it's one of these things we've talked about this morning in, in kind of reflecting on these verses together, or maybe it's something that's got nothing to do with these verses. All kinds of things, so many hard things, scary things, anxious things that different ones are, are struggling with. And we would simply ask you to, in your abiding presence with us, would you please comfort us, encourage us, fill us with your peace, the peace that comes only from your love. That's why it transcends all human understanding, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, it, it, uh, it comes from your love. It comes from you. And so we pray that you would be doing that in us. Comfort us, encourage us, and help us as we keep lifting these things up to you. 
We ask all this, we pray it all in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.